Hello and welcome back to the Polaris Travel Health Podcast. Thanks for tuning in with us this week. We're going to be talking about altitude sickness. Yeah. So we normally talk about more infectious diseases uh, on the show, but today we thought we should chat about something else uh, that you might get when you're traveling. So what is altitude sickness and why does it happen? Well, when you think about altitude sickness, it really is your body not be used to the altitude that you're at. So your your body basically is having trouble acclimatizing to, you know, the lower lower amount of oxygen and really feel really lousy and it can go all the way until really severe complications. We usually think about three categories. By far the most common and the mildest version is what we call acute mountain sickness or AMS. And there's also high altitude cerebral edema and high altitude pulmonary edema, which is basically swelling in the brain or swelling in the lungs. And those are the ones that are less common, thankfully, but very severe. Okay, so what do the symptoms of these three kind of categories look like? When you start talking about uh, AMS, acute mountain sickness, the best way to describe it to people is feels like you have a hangover. It's all the typical hangover type symptoms, headache, nausea, fatigue, irritability. Just think of a hangover and that basically is, is what it would be like. And you know, for some people, it can be, you know, somewhat incapacitating. For other people, it can just be, you know, like a bit of a pounding headache. Then when you start thinking about high altitude cerebral edema, that's when, you know, you can have loss of consciousness and, you know, your brain swelling up. So, you know, your motor skills are affected. And with high altitude pulmonary edema, really, you're out of breath with minimal exertion, you can get pink frothy sputum. Something is very wrong with your breathing. And it's mostly because you're, you've got all that swelling in your, in your lungs. Right. And so do you, we find that there are fatalities, like people die from having mainly kind of like the cerebral edema and the pulmonary edema? Correct. You're not going to die from acute mountain sickness. It may affect, may, may affect your activities uh, but it's not going to, it unto itself isn't going to make you die. But the other two, for sure. Uh, again, Jaden, you're always doing the great re- <laughs> advanced research because I, I know a lot of these things, but I don't have all the numbers off the top of my head. But right. thank you for checking this. You, you said that um, uh, in Nepal every year, about seven people on average die from altitude related illness. And that would most likely be the pulmonary edema and the cerebral edema. Right, right. Yeah, and I assume you're not keeping a little Excel spreadsheet with all of the like fatality numbers for these different diseases. We know that this is absolutely a thing and it's definitely something that is that is really dangerous, you know, and 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 now are you going to get, you know, one of these really severe um swellings in the brain or in, in the lungs under sort of typical, you know, high altitude travel conditions? Not likely, but if you are doing more extreme travel, it certainly is a, a thing. That's why we mentioned Nepal there, for example, because that's where you start talking about ever space camp and that sort of thing. Right. So you don't tend to get the more serious ones from, say, going to like ski in the Rockies or whatever, something like that. Usually you're not going to see in those circumstances. You really have to spend a more extended period of time at those altitudes. Like I right. guess the way I would describe it is 
if you're going skiing in the Rockies and you're going up to a higher altitude where you could be at risk based on the altitude, you know, you're skiing down the hill again right away. Or even if you're going up and down or for, for a bit, it's only just for a very short period of time. It's more when you're at much higher altitudes or you're staying at that altitude that is, you know, higher for an extended period of time. And when we start talking about altitudes, I actually should probably even throw that in right now. 7,500 feet is sort of where altitude sickness symptoms can start to develop. Right. And what happens really is everyone is ultimately going to get altitude sickness. It's just a matter of at what altitude. It's not easy to predict, but that's that, that's sort of the start number where we, we usually work on the basis. Sure. So you mentioned to me kind of as we were preparing this, that I should ask you about the golden rules of altitude sickness. Do you want to explain what that might be? Yes. So this is stolen. And I actually, I did a little (laughs) bit of um, uh, research and I'm quite confident that both these guys are not going to care that I'm doing this. And I'm sure they're not listening, but I saw a presentation a few years ago and it was by a a gent named... uh, Dr. Ken Zafrin, and also he credited Dr. David Schlim, who's kind of has a long history of being a, um, a physician at high altitude in uh, Nepal. Um, they basically, these are their golden rules of altitude sickness. And like I said, I'm pretty sure they'll be okay if I uh, steal them and I have stolen them. Rule number one is if you feel bad at high altitude, it's because of the altitude until proven otherwise. Right. Rule number two, if you feel bad at high altitude, don't go higher until your symptoms go away. And we know that usually you'll acclimatize in about three days. Rule number three, if you're very sick, getting worse, or you can't walk in a straight line, you should go down. And the fourth rule is if you're in a group and you've got somebody who needs to go down, don't send them down by themselves, which sort of goes without saying, but still probably makes sense to be the fourth rule. So those are those are the four rules and they're like very common sense, but I think that uh, they're hard to argue with. Right, definitely. So kind of on that, what should you do if you do start to experience altitude sickness or you think that you are? So really the best thing to do is just treat your symptoms and not go up. So I'll give you a good example that we see very often in the clinic and because probably of all the trips that we see most often it's people going to Peru, Machu Picchu. That's a very common trip. And it is a trip where you can definitely uh, be looking at some altitude sickness issues because you're definitely talking about, you know, 10, 11,000 feet. Uh, sorry, I don't know why I've never really been converted over to metric on the <laughs> altitude for some reason. But but um, when you um, think about those locations, it, it's you can definitely feel altitude sickness. So you fly in uh, into Cusco, which is where everyone usually starts these uh, itineraries where they're going to Inca Trail and Machu Picchu. So you're already at that height. I think it's around 11,000 feet. So it's very common that you will feel, you can feel unwell at that level. So uh, what I would say to manage it is symptomatic treatment you you know you you do pain relievers drink fluids and just kind of chill out don't do too much and within a few days your your body will acclimatize now most of the time when people are doing itineraries that are tours through Machu Picchu it's always interesting i and whenever i look at them because always how they start is flying to Cusco day 1 is or 
day two, whatever the really the first day of the tour is, it's never let's go hiking. It's <laughs> it's always spend the day in Cuzco, look around, check out the markets, check out the sites. They all, they basically set these tours up in such a way most of the time that the first day or two, you're not going too far or doing too much. So if you feel really lousy that you're, you're not already having to hike right away. So there is that. And that's probably the single best thing to do. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about prevention options down the line. And I think at that point, I'll sort of go a little bit more into some medicinal treatment options beyond your typical pain relievers and and that sort of thing. Sure. So are there people who are kind of more susceptible to it than others? Is there kind of a way that you can predict who might get it and who might remain unaffected? Not really. Like we don't really have all the answers as to why someone will develop altitude sickness at a certain altitude. Why, for example, Jaden, maybe you and I go on a trip and we are walking gradually up and maybe I just start developing altitude sickness and starting to feel really hangovery and sick around 8,500 feet. Meanwhile, you're fine. Maybe you can make it all the way up to 12,000 feet before you start to feel sick. Right. There's no real way we can tell. It's a probably genetic component, but the only real true indicator is previous history. Right. If you've been at higher altitudes before and had no problems, chances are you'll be fine again. I can remember I did a, a consult several years ago and it was a guy going to actually doing the Peru trip, the Machu Picchu Cusco trip. And we got to the topic of altitude sickness. And, you know, usually the first question I ask is, have you been to high altitude before? Because that would be a good predictor. And I asked him and he said, oh yeah. He said, I did Everest base camp and I was like fine the whole time. Like he never did Everest itself, but made it to the base camp. So I'm like, well, if you've been to Everest base camp and never really had any (laughs) problems, you'll be fine in Cusco. (laughs) Right, right. So that is really how the only thing you can really do is is previous history. In fact, so here's something we never really talked about in the lead up, Jaden, that I think is kind of interesting, is that there is a little bit of data that supports that maybe if you are in really good shape, particularly in endurance events like long distance running, that you actually might be slightly more susceptible to altitude sickness than someone who's not in good shape. Really? Uh, I'd love to see more work done on this. Uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, and there is a thought process behind it. But uh, yeah, actually, being in not as good shape might slightly decrease your chances of getting altitude sickness. Is there any kind of suggestion as to why that might be? You got it. And uh, I'm gonna, I, I don't, I, I'm not wanting to do too many spoiler alert things. But I think <laughs> we'll, we'll have to start talking about the main thing we use to prevent altitude sickness, and then it will all crystallize itself nicely. Oh, see. Okay. So the next question would be, can you prevent altitude sickness or prepare for it in some way? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> what a timely question. Uh, so we already talked about some of the non, like, non-medicinal like non things to do, but I think really what I want to talk about right now is the medicinal options. And the primary one that we talk about is acetazolamide. Acetazolamide is a very old medicine. It's been around, oh, I don't even know, like 40s, 50s, something like that. Um, The original brand name is Diamox. Some people still call it Diamox, even though in Canada, you can't even buy Diamox anymore. That brand, like they don't make it anymore. It's just the generic version of it. Um, 
so acetazolamide was originally invented as a glaucoma therapy. So we're talking the old days, they hadn't really invented good eye drops yet. So you had high pressure in your eyes, glaucoma. What the solution was is they would give you these acetazolamide tablets and say, hey, take one of these four times a day for the rest of your life, help prevent you from going blind from glaucoma. But then one of the things that we found out is that it seems like this stuff helps against preventing and treating altitude sickness. So interesting. Yeah. But here's the thing. We don't really completely understand exactly why. We have a couple theories. And I, I think the best theory that we're working with right now is when you take this medicine, one of the things it does is it does affect the acid base balance in your in your body, like in your in your bloodstream. Very right. slightly. But what happens is when you disturb this acid base uh, balance that you have while taking acetazolamide, really what ends up happening is it does slightly increase your rate of respiration. So you start to breathe a little bit faster when you're on acetazolamide. Now, it's not like you're going to be walking around going, you know, like, like panting like a, like a dog, <laughs> but maybe it's a slight increase in your respiration rate over the course of the minute. And what we think is happening here is because you're essentially breathing more rapidly it helps your body acclimatize and, you know, with oxygen levels. And we think this is, this is how it works. So that's kind of where we're at with that. Now, this leads all back into what we talked about before right. about, about endurance runners. So the theory is if this medicine makes you breathe faster and as a result, you are get more acclimatized that way, what happens to people that are really fit, really good runners, really good endurance athletes one of the things that happens is your respiration rate when you're more fit tends to be less. You tend to be have a lower respiration rate. So we've kind of established that a lower respiration rate at altitude might not be good. <laughs> so, uh, or maybe is not a positive. So as a result, basically what we're looking at here is we think because of those endurance runners have that lower respiration rate, maybe they're slightly more at risk. Does that make sense? That's kind of a weird tangent I took, but I'm sort of fascinated by it because I fancy myself as a little bit of a runner, not a great runner, but a little <laughs> bit of a runner. So I, I, I think that's an interesting theory. That does make sense given that it's one of the side effects that is kind of listed is that you do breathe faster and that can kind of affect some other stuff. And so if you're normally someone who is a bit more of a controlled breather, that would be a bit of a problem, I suppose. Yeah. And that, and so that's what you're looking at. And it's, like I said, interesting stuff. It, like, it's so weird to me in a way that, you know, this is a medicine that's been around for a long time, yet we don't really have the most clear understanding of exactly the, the details. The one nice thing is because it's been around for so long and it's been so well used over the years, there's not a lot of surprises involved. Like we, we feel pretty confident about what it's going to do to you or not going to do to you from a side effect standpoint and drug interaction right. standpoint. So we feel pretty good about that. Right. And so with that, do you have to start taking them before you leave or just kind of when you start feeling sick, how far in advance, what is kind of the situation with that? So usually my recommendation for the most part is to take acetazolamide preventatively. There, right. there is the ability to take it on a treatment basis, but most often I like to prescribe it preventatively. What we usually do is you start taking it the directions are to take it twice a day, starting 24 hours prior to your going to high altitude. 
And then you basically continue it on a twice a day basis until you get to your maximum altitude and then for an additional day or two after that. And as far as dosing, you know, we're usually looking at a half of a 250 milligram tablet. So about 125 milligrams twice a day. So just to give you some perspective there, when you used to have to take it for glaucoma, you used to take a full tablet four times a day. Oh, and when you're and when you're taking it for altitude sickness, it's half a tablet twice a day. Although if you are physically bigger and you're way more, um, sometimes we look at doing a, a full tablet twice a day. But um, what we know is a half a tablet twice a day works almost as well in most people as a full tablet, and the side effect profile is usually quite a bit better. Right. And so kind of speaking of those side effects, what can they look like for different people? The three main side effects I always tell people about when I, uh, they're taking acetazolamide are, are the following. It makes you pee more. <laughs> it is a di- it's a diuretic, so it will cause you to urinate more. So that will definitely be an issue. Maybe not a severe issue, but it will it it'll probably be noticeable at least the first day or so you take it. Another thing which is very odd, but it has to do with the mechanism of action of the drug. Anything carbonated. So like can of Coke or something like that, it will make it have a metallic taste. And that is very strange. You're not going to get sick or die from it, but you are not going to want to drink a Coke while you're taking this medicine because the carbonation and the med just do not mix. And then the third side effect, which is actually the one which I'm probably more concerned about than the other two, is that you can develop prickly, tingly feeling in your hands and feet and extremities. Now, in most people, it's really mild, goes away. In some people, it can be really severe. So my advice typically is if it's not too bad and it's, you can notice it, but it's not really causing any problems, I wouldn't worry about it too much. It's not a sign that something really bad is happening. That being said, if it's really bugging you, I know I talked to one person and they'd said it was so bad they couldn't sleep. I advise stop taking it because at the end of the day, it's a preventative medicine. And, and usually if the, if the side effects are, are worse than the theoretical problem you're trying to treat, then I would just say stop taking it. So I actually got a call from someone in Peru and that was that's, that's what happened. So yeah. So if it's Mild, not a big deal, carry on. Actually, I will tell uh, one story and this person might actually be listening. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I uh, I talked to one of my uh, patients and he told me when he came back that when he was in Peru and he took, was taking acetazolamide, his nose, the tip of his nose tingled, which oh. I thought was interesting and very weird. But um, anyway, no big deal. But it, it's some, any kind of extremity can potentially be a problem. Right. And does it um, interact with any kind of like specific other medications that anyone should be concerned about? We know that chemically there is a relationship between acetazolamide and uh, sulfa. Now, generally speaking, it would have to be a pretty severe sulfa allergy for me to be concerned, but that would always be something that would be on my radar screen more than uh, more than anything else. Right. So... Speaking of you kind of mentioning that this is mainly a kind of a preventative drug, but people also have use it for treatment. What does the treatment look like? Kind of uh, briefly say if you were to develop a more severe version of altitude sickness. One thing you can do with the cesolamide is you can take it at a higher dosage and it can be used for treatment. Now, the problem that you might end up having is like you would end up taking, say, a full tablet twice a day, like increase the dose to that. 
The problem you may end up having though is it may be a little hard to catch up, you know, so to speak, on it. Right. But increasing your dose of acetazolamide is a, a viable possibility. Uh, another thing which can be done is dexamethasone, a steroid. It can theoretically be given preventatively, but it can definitely be used for treatment. Although I I can't even think of a time I ever prescribed it like that. <laughs> uh, you really kind of have to know what you're doing with it. You know, it's a steroid, and and um, you know, I think that I would reserve dexamethasone for people that would be really going to really high altitudes and that maybe have some level of knowledge about the appropriate use of it, and and they are at significant risk. Like I said, I'm trying to think back and I maybe one time I prescribed it, that's it. So it is something that's out there and theoretically possible, but it's not something which I wouldn't prescribe dexamethasone routinely. I'd always go with like an acetazolamide first. Right. So kind of moving on from there, I have a preconceived notion about altitude sickness. I think about mountains, but are there kind of any other cities other than obviously Peru, which you mentioned, or more common places where you might actually get altitude sickness without really thinking about it? There are two places that we see people go to on trips where it's not unusual to experience altitude sickness when you fly in, in addition to Cusco. Um, by the way, just to go briefly about back to Peru, when you fly into Lima, you're on the coast. So right. if you're doing a trip from Canada, or United States into Lima, that's not the issue. The issue is when you fly from Lima to Cusco. Right. But the other two places where people can fly into sometimes directly from North America is Quito, um, Ecuador, and also La Paz, Bolivia. Those are both places that are pretty high up. Quito, not quite as much, but La Paz, it's a really high place. And you can definitely feel sick pretty quickly after you land. I'm sort of fascinated by the whole concept. Now, one of my other things I like, and gradually as we're doing these podcasts, I'm starting to tell, tell you a little bit about my <laughs> life. I, I, I like soccer quite a bit. And one of the things I think is interesting is the Bolivian soccer team is not that great. But <laughs> guess what? They have very good record at home. You want to guess right. why? <laughs> because they are much more familiar with the high altitude. And when a team flies in and has to fly into La Paz, they're not really feeling at their best. And that definitely is a big home field advantage for, for Bolivia. Although it doesn't really help them on the away games. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Everyone on the, on the uh, I guess it's called a pitch, isn't it? Correct. Is that just what yes. English people call it? It's <laughs> um, yes. the proper name, I guess. I see. Well, they, everyone else feels like crap and they're, they're feeling good. So yeah, because I think that's something we should always keep in mind too, is that when we start talking about acclimatization, you will feel better in a few days at that altitude. It, your body does figure out a way to adjust. So it's not just the meds, the meds help you adjust, but you will adjust. So if you stay at the same altitude and, and you just basically chill out and don't do a lot and treat your symptoms you'll get better. Of course, if you go further, then we could have problems again. But right. your, your body will develop, and it's short-term acclimatization, right? It's not like you could fly back in six months and be still acclimatized. It wears off pretty quickly. But it will, you know, it will help you out. Like you only need a few days before you get that benefit. Right. And so how often kind of in your experience do you see people coming in who are worried about altitude sickness because they're doing kind of like an extreme mountain climb activity? We definitely see it. You know, by far the most common trip we see is is the 
the Cusco Machu Picchu trip. But right. we do see people go to Bolivia from time to time and Quito uh, in Ecuador. Ecuador is a pretty common destination. People usually spend a little bit of time in Quito before they go off to the coast or into the rainforest. So that's another one. And then the the other one we see too is uh, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. Right. And then of course the Himalayas, like, you know, that's not a trip for everyone, of course, but that's, um, that's where probably there's the much higher risk of having more severe complications. But yeah, you're talking high altitude in that part of the world. But uh, those are probably the places where we would typically run in, run into preventing or treating altitude sickness. Right. So not just family vacations. <laughs> Typically not so much. Yeah. I, not really. Not really. Okay. Well, is there anything else that you kind of wanted to mention? Anything that we missed? Yeah. I think a couple other things I just wanted to talk about. There are some other options that are available for people that we didn't really talk about. Like, you know, things like bottled oxygen, hyperbaric chambers. There are these portable hyperbaric chambers that can be taken. Now, I typically wouldn't recommend someone packing one for a Peru trip, but that's more along the lines of, of uh, the Himalayas type trip. Those things are, are, are options that are available. There are a couple other medications that can be used for um, altitude sickness, including uh, nifedipine and another one, which uh, is kind of amusing in a way, but sildenafil, which is the ingredient in Viagra, actually oh. seems to have some beneficial effects uh, in regards to altitude sickness, I've never prescribed it for that purpose, but it, there is there is some thought process there. Probably does do something to a degree. I think those would be the the main other things. And oh, I know one more thing I wanted to mention. Uh, I've heard a couple of case reports of you know people that are incredibly incredibly unwell, and they get evacuated down further down the mountain, and they go from basically being practically comatose to like recovering just by the sheer decrease in altitude. Like right. it, it's very rapid improvement. The only problem is, is once you get into one of those severe situations where with the cerebral edema or pulmonary edema, like you're usually at high altitudes and evacuation is not exactly an easy thing. But right. um, but if you can get someone down the mountain, they can get better very quickly. Right. So yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be life-threatening it's more just like kind of the context in which it occurs where you can't get back down on your own yeah like that really turns into a problem and like that's a whole topic that um you know when you start talking about you know doing himalaya like everest base camp things like there's so many issues health-wise like you know people die doing those type of things all the time and and part of it is is that if something bad happens to you up there it's not very easy to get you back because even you can't really fly helicopters, you know, up yeah. there and that, then you start running into those kind of problems. So how do you really evacuate somebody and get them down to like good medical care? It's one of the risks you take when you do some of those trips. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, anything else that you wanted to mention? I think that's it for now. So I, I think we covered a lot of it and I got to tell a few funny stories and not funny stories, but, uh, <laughs> you know, a few anecdotes in there. So yes, that's always, that's always enjoyable. All right. Well, thank you for tuning into this week's edition of the Polaris Travel Health Podcast. A reminder that the information and advice that we provided in this podcast are not a substitute for live medical advice that is tailored to your itinerary and your medical history. If you have any questions or want to book an appointment, please head over to our website, the polaristravelclinic.ca. 
Also, check us out on Twitter at Polaris Travel RX and our Facebook page as well. We hope you'll tune in again with us next week. Thanks, Jaden. Thank you.